Motorhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Heather Adams here. Thank you for joining me for Turning Pages. Over the next year, we'll be recommending some great books, and I've been talking to novelist AJ McKenzie about their favourite books. And we'll be chatting about Graham Greene. Thank you for joining me today. We've got a great show coming up. So alongside me today is Julian Ashton, who will be reading a few excerpts from our chosen books and joining me in discussing our recommended titles. So Julian, good morning. Good morning, Heather. So what do we have this morning coming up? Well, I've been talking to husband and wife novelist who write under the name of AJ McKenzie. You might remember Mm -hmm. we were talking to them a couple of days ago. Indeed. We spoke to them recently about their latest novel, A Flight of Arrows which is a spy novel set during the Hundred Years' War. And I couldn't resist asking them about the books that they love and that inspire them. So my interview with them will be coming up later. Good. We're also going to look at Graham Greene, uh, one of our greatest novelists of, uh, of the 20th uh, century. Absolutely. Just just a little touch of Graham mm-hmm. Greene there for you, the zither. Um, and once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book uh, news, and we'll be providing some book recommendations from our listeners. So you're listening to Turning Pages the, on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we would love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, great book recommendations, if you run a book club or a local author, we'd love you to get in touch. You can contact me on heather at river.radio with any of your book news and we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. And don't forget to tell your friends about this show. So Julian, let's start with some interesting tidbits that we spotted in the press. And um, what um, have you spotted for us? Well, uh, there's the annual celebration of the best books, bookshops and publishers, which is the British Book Awards. The the Nibbies. Yeah, the Nibbies, exactly. For 2020, the Nibbies. Uh, And it represents the very best of the book trade, uh, which is uh, the UK's leading creative industry. Um, the book of the year um, was uh, Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart and was published by, or is published by Picador, should I say. Uh, and this uh, book also won the debut fiction book of the year. And you might remember, it also won the Booker Prize last year. And it's, it really is a non-forgettable story. Uh, and it's about a young Hugh Shuggy Bane, who's a sweet and lonely lad um, who spends his 1980s childhood in a run-down public housing in Glasgow in Scotland. Margaret Thatcher's policies um, have put husbands and sons out of work. And the city's notorious drugs, drugs epidemic is waiting in the wings. So it's really quite atmospheric. 
Uh, it's a very heartbreaking story of addiction, sexuality and love. And Shuggy Bane is a really an epic portrayal of a working class family that is rarely seen in fiction. That sounds great. So author of the year I know was Richard Osman yeah. for the Thursday Murder Club. Now, I think sometimes I'm a bit disappointed when famous people write books just because they're famous. But I've got to say, his has sold brilliantly. It's been at the top of the bestsellers list practically for the last, well, six months or so. Which is great, but you don't mind him because he's a really nice guy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so he spent 25 weeks at the top of the bookseller's original fiction chart. And I think it's the fastest selling novel since J.K. Rowling's The Casual Vacancy in 2012. Really? Yeah. Carry on. Oh, I beg your pardon. (laughs) We all went a bit silent then. It did indeed. what other awards well, were they, Julian? The Page Turn Award, um, th- where the Crawdad Sings uh, by Delia Owens. This was uh, published by Corsair, and this is her debut novel, uh, and is the first winner of this uh, new gong, um, and, and added honour to the popular fiction titles across all formats. Um, yeah, uh, the novel uh, resists categorisation and is in equal parts a coming-of-age story. It's a murder mystery as well. There's romance and a sharply observed nature writing. Um, themes of loneliness, isolation, an intimate connection between people and the natural world particularly resonated with our judges after such a turbulent pandemic hit year. And I think it's great that they've done a page-turner. Yeah. Because it's actually all about what you're enjoying, isn't it? Well, it is. I yeah. mean, literally, you have to go from one to other. You know, you just say, oh, well, actually, this is a bit tedious. I'll put it down. No, yeah. you need to keep on going. Yeah. So, and I think there was an independent bookshop of the year, wasn't there? Yes, there was. And whilst it, I have to say, it's not so local to the Thames Valley, I'm rather proud to say it's actually um, in my hometown, which is in Sevenoaks in Kent. And so it's the Sevenoaks Bookshop won the, um, the award uh, as the best independent bookshop for 2021. That's great. It's yeah. always good to yeah. celebrate a bookshop. Yeah. So we've uh, been in, uh, somebody's been in contact with us about a local author. Oh, yes, good. A poet. Mm-hmm. Not just Mike Burton, I've got to say, there are other uh, poets. Oh, there's and another one. There is. And this boy, I'm saying boy advisedly, because he's just entered the Guinness Book of Records for being the youngest author with a commercial book. And his name is Nadim, and he's four years old. And um, he's been published by Walker Books. And his poetry book is called Take Off Your Brave. And it's a really fabulous book. And I have been talking to his mum about how he got his publishing deal. But I thought we would just start off listening to a little poem by him. So he is only four. So you might have to listen carefully, but it's only 20 seconds long. So have a listen to this. Love. Everyone has loved him. Love someone, flamingos. Love someone, the wind. Love someone, the sea. Love someone, spirit. Letters, house, houses, everything you ever know. Love someone. Everyone has love, even baddies. That last sentence: everyone has love, even baddies, which I think is gorgeous. So anyway, I've been talking to his mum, Yasmin, this morning and chatting to her about how the book deal came about. It's lovely to have you join us today. 
What a fabulous book. It came about on its own, really. Nadim had started writing some poems with me following my having been armed with some prompts from Kate Clancy for my own work. And afterwards, I shared them with Kate and she shared them with her Twitter followers who were extremely enthusiastic and receptive about them. And after that, there was an article in the Times that was meant to be about, I think, Kate and her work at large, running poetry workshops during the first lockdown, virtually. But she had mentioned, you know, that anyone could write a poem. She had a four-year-old doing it. And the journalist was quite keen to hear more about that four-year-old. And so (laughs) after that article came out in the Sunday Times, I think there were three articles in the Times about him and his writing. Uh, We were approached by a few publishers and it just kind of snowballed. So it's been accidental, but wonderful. Oh, that's fantastic. I also Mm. see that he's a a Guinness World Record holder for being (laughs) the youngest person to have a book published, which is brilliant. I think it's youngest commercially published in the UK, to be super (laughs) specific about the record, (laughs) but we'll take it. Brilliant. So what do you think poetry has given Nadine? I think it's given him a voice and a place to express both his kind of uh, experience of the world with fresh eyes and also uh, a place to kind of play that game of arrangement that you do in arts and crafts. I think he's slowly becoming a little bit more aware of the way that words sound up against each other because, you know, he's, he's now five, he's still little, and the kind of music that words can make. And it's been really wonderful getting to understand his, the evolution of his own oral and verbal perception through poetry. Have you been surprised mm. about anything? Have you learned anything about Nadine from this process? Oh, yes. And I think lots of parents could learn things about their children because the questions that you can ask to promote a poem, to m- promote the writing of a poem, are ones that kind of disarm everybody, you know, whether you're talking to adults or children from their... the the kind of automated perception of the world. So what I mean by that is, for example, in that first poem that um, started this whole thing going, the poem Take Off Your Brave, from which the um, book gets its title, you go through the things that someone takes off when they come home. And most of those things are ordinary, your coat, your gloves, your shoes, depending on the season. And then you start thinking about the less concrete things. And so for Nadim, when he did that, the first thing that came to mind was that he takes off his brave. And I think it would be so interesting for another parent to ask their children what they take off when they come home, because for me, that was a shocker. I didn't know that he was putting on a brave face. So there have been lots of kinds of wonderful discoveries like that. Yeah, Mm. it is a big thing, isn't it, to go out onto the world in your own to go to a nursery. So what recommendations would you have for other parents out there to encourage their children to do what you've been doing? Give it a try. (laughs) Yeah, I would. uh, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of poetry. It's a big part of my life. And I think that one of the problems we and even grown-ups have this problem, is this sense of what a poem should be like or should sound like or how it has to go. I run poetry workshops with children at Nadim's school and at the nursery that he used to attend just for fun as a volunteer. And I noticed that one of the first things that children think is that a poem has to rhyme. And so once you take that requirement away, the whole field opens up for them. So give it a go. There's a wonderful book out by Kate Clanchy now that collects all of the prompts that she's done. It's called Grow Your Own Poem. 
And it's a real handbook. It really guides you through how to sit down with someone. And I would be being dishonest if I said that, you know, a big part of this book wasn't because of the wonderful prompts that Kate offers there. They're really clear and you could use that as a way forward, or you could look at take off your brave and sit down with your own child. And, you know, for example, after reading the take off your brave poem, ask your child what they take off, start writing it down. If they don't write yet, if they're not at writing age, write it down for them. It's really empowering for them to see their own words on the page. There's another poem there called Magic Box. And in that, there's an example of Nadim doing a magic box poem and also Talene, his little sister. And that is very clear. You know, you just kind of imagine someone that you would love to send a magic box to and fill it with wonderful things and they can be real and they can be abstract. But I think that the poems themselves can serve as prompts yeah. uh, for other parents and children. I think the really great thing is just to sit down with your child and, and read books and show them that you enjoy doing that too. Absolutely. And that sit down bit is so important in this modern age. I, I think if I were really honest, I would share that one of the reasons Nadim has loved writing poems so much is because it's a moment where I sit down with him and only him and take time, turn everything else off and just be patient and listen um, to what he has to say. You know, I would, I would challenge yourself as a parent to think about the last time you did that, you just sat down and listened to your child talk to you or at you for 15 minutes or so, it, you will be shocked at what would come out. So the sitting down is really important. Brilliant. And just 50 minutes or even five minutes, that would be perfect. That is excellent. Thank you so much indeed. So that's Take Off Your Brave by uh, Nadim and it's published by Walker Books. So thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me. Simply just ignore This scruffy, beat-up, working-class Teenage troubadour So we fell in love And I toured your heart With my out-of-tune guitar You were wonderful You were mystical And the envy of all of my Seems like only yesterday Under the stars on Brighton Beach Oh, what a time it was What a time to be alive This is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you for listening. 
Coming up in the show later, we'll be discussing Graham Greene, one of our most renowned authors of the 20th century. But first, let's go to a conversation I've had with A.J. McKenzie, who are one of my favourite historical crime fiction authors. We spoke about their novel, A Flight of Arrows, published by Canelo. And I wanted to ask them now about their reading habits and what books they would recommend. We've previously spoken about your book, A Flight of Arrows, in more detail. And I couldn't let you go without a conversation about the importance of books in your life and generally about the books and the authors that inspire your writing. So first of all, I'm going to ask Marilyn first, were you always a reader and can you remember your favourite books from a child? Yes, I can't remember not reading. I, I do remember, actually having said that, I'm going to contradict myself. I remember my mother going through the alphabet with me before I went to school, which in Canada was about four, I was just turned five. Yeah, no, avid reader. My idea of absolute hell is being stuck somewhere without anything to read. Read. I would read a bus schedule if that was the only thing on offer. But the only other thing that can, can almost come close to, to, to books are maps. I, I, if I didn't have a book and I had a map, I'd be, I'd be just as happy. Favourite books from childhood, hands down, no contest, Ellen Montgomery. Uh, all the Anne books, the non-Anne books. I still reread them now. I love them to death. I was talking They're to somebody wonderful. the other day, said they read Anne of Green Gables every year at Christmas. Their Christmas treat. And, and actually the, the, one, the one that is really underrated, which is one of her last later ones, is one set during World War I called Rilla of Ingleside, which is about Anne's youngest daughter. And it's an absolutely brilliant picture of the home front during World War I in Canada. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's, it's really good. Were you always going to be a writer? I've always scribbled, probably not as enthusiastically or obsessively as Morgan's, I would have to say that. But yes, always, always scribbled out indeed if I root through bits of my office at the moment I'd probably find half written stories from from when I was a kid. Morgan you were obviously always a writer then. Yeah well I certainly I was always a reader I really was reading from almost sort of time I can first remember and I was quite precocious as well I could read sort of further ahead than other kids in my class at school. The downside of that was I was always the same, an equal distance behind them in terms of maths and, and arithmetic. What was given with one hand was taken away with the other. I started reading uh, kids' books, I guess, but I graduated fairly early on to, to more serious stuff. I mean, one of the books I remember that made a deep impression on me was a series of stories about Robin Hood, which were actually quite adult. When I look back at them now, they had some quite dark themes in them. And then I got on to Conan Doyle's The White Company and Sir Nigel, and that kind of also cemented my interest in the Middle Ages. So it really grew out of that. But I also started reading nonfiction. I started reading history when I was fairly young as well. The histories of the Second World War and things like this. Uh, my reading as a child was incredibly violent now when I look back at it. I mean, it was all about war, death, massacre, <laughs> etc. And yet I've, I've always been quite a calm and pacific person. So I Hopefully my reading has made very little impact on me. Yes, all your frustrations but, have got out on the novel. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I, I mean, started sure. writing, I think, because if I saw a story, I really wanted to do one like that myself. I wanted to write one like that myself. So I read Hornblower and immediately started going out and writing sea stories. And I'd usually get about six pages in and run out of steam because I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. But that was kind of how I began to teach myself how to write was, was as a kid. 
Brilliant. So you're researching your second book in the Hundred Years War series at the moment, A Clash of Lions. Great title. So when you're researching the book, do you find that your reading habits have to change? Well, my reading habits have been really weird for most of my life in that, that for example, I mean, Morgan was talking about violent, violent books when he was his kid. As, as, alongside reading L.M. Montgomery's Anne novels, I also between the ages of about 12 and 14, read absolutely everything that there was to read on the on the rise of the Third Reich. So yeah, I'm not <laughs> I'm not sure what my regular reading habits habits are. I mean, we're fortunate when it comes to research for this period in that we have a really good library and in including a really good library of primary sources. So when we first started to look at Clash of Lions, I, I went back to the close roles and the patent roles and and the fine rolls, all the all the original sources, and look to see who was doing what, where, when, and that gives you some jumping off points. I mean, great stories jump off the pages of those original sources, even though they're even though the published versions of them are very much truncated, and 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 you, know, you have to go and look at the original parchment to get the full story. So that that's where I started, and then and then you start looking at places really. Mm. And that's your research of a book but what about do you sort of read for pleasure whilst you're writing a book as well I read more for pleasure probably at the moment than Morgan does and at the moment I'm, I'm roaring through a golden age crime novels 1930s so 1920s 1930s fantastic author called ERC Lorak who's just who's just great stuff some of them some of these have been published by the British Museum series some of them are are available as ebooks they're, they're just some of them are quite samey but they're they're good fun so that's my that's my relaxation reading and um, Morgan I, I tend it's a funny thing when we're writing a novel I tend not to read fiction I think it's because because I learned to write by imitation in a way. I'm worried that I might slide back into that and start trying to write like somebody else. And I, I've always really not wanted to do that. You know, since I since I matured as a writer, I, I, I or we find our own voices. So I don't tend to read a lot of fiction when I'm when I'm writing fiction. I'll read nonfiction instead, and then probably the other way around. If we were working on a nonfiction project, I'd read novels more for pleasure. But no, it, it, it's quite odd. I, I don't tend to read a lot when I'm writing, which I know you're supposed to do. Everyone keeps telling me that I should do it. I, but I, I find it difficult. You're not supposed to do anything, I think. It's whatever, <laughs> whatever works for you. So what influence, what um, authors and books have influenced you as writers? For me, it's probably other historical novelists have been key influences. Dorothy Dunnett's first series, the Lyman series, were were big influences, read those again when I was quite young. George MacDonald Fraser, horrendously politically incorrect, but very, very funny and, and a brilliant depictor of scenes. Mary Stewart, gone a bit out of fashion now, but but her some novels set in ancient Greece, I thought were, were really, no, I beg your pardon, that's Mary Reno, novels set in ancient Greece, and Mary Stewart's Arthurian novels were, were, were also sort of big influences when I was younger. So yeah, it's basically anybody who can who can make me feel like I'm part of a scene, especially a scene that happened a hundred or a thousand years in the past. That's the kind of writing I really enjoy. I like the sense of immediacy and a feeling like I'm there at the time. That's what really, what really gets feeling. And that's what you've absorbed into your own writing, obviously. Hopefully, yeah. Definitely. Marilyn, what about you? Do you think there's well, any- um, Morgan's responsible for my reading historical fiction, I have to say, because he introduced me to Dorothy Dunnett probably the first year, first summer we were going out, I think, which is 40 some odd years ago now. And I said, I'd never really read any historical fiction before. And then his mother, when I was staying with them, gave me a Georgette Hare 
and and well and 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 then I was like like seriously hooked. And both of those both of those writers and Georgia Hare, in my view, is like hugely un- underrated as a historical novelist. Place you in their milieu, uh, in what feels like an almost effortless way. And 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 you know, and I, I know I know Georgia Hare's are fluffy, but if you go and look at the sources that she uses for her for her backgrounds, they are excellent first-hand accounts of the period and 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 yeah those those two those two certainly would it would have been would have been the, the big the big influences in terms of historical fiction and then i i've always i've always liked a bit of crime and morgan's morgan's mother again introduced me to nail marsh who's who I, of whom i'm a huge fan again just subtle interesting interesting novels yeah i think I could go on, but we could be here all day. <laughs> what have you got alongside your bedside table at the moment? What's your uh, pile of reading that you're doing? I tend to have four or five books on the go at the same time. So at the moment, I've got a, a, a book by uh, a, a woman who farms up in, in Cumberland uh, called The Red Shepherdess. Oh, well, call I mean, me Red. I, 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 follow her on, I follow her on Twitter and she's, she's an amazing person. I came across her via James Rebanks's Twitter feed and I have, I have finished an English pastoral by him as well. I've got an Annie Gray who's a food historian on the go as well. It's the uh, biography of, of Churchill's wartime cook. That's, that's up there as well. I've got an Anthony Horowitz which I, I've started but not, not, got, not got very far into which is actually a medieval book as it happens. Yeah, that's a few anyway. Well, that's that's more than enough to uh, send you to sleep, I think. As well as as well as my as well as my the the ebooks are 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 the send to sleepers ones, and those are the the classic the classic area crime fiction. Anyway, and Morgan, Morgan. what's on your bedside table? Oh, the thing I've really got to read, but it's, I, I need to find the time to actually read it properly. Is William Dalrymple's *The Anarchy*, which is his um, history of the East India Company. I mean, I'm sure this is going to be an absolutely fabulous read, but it is massive, right? I need to be able to invest some some time in in reading that properly. Otherwise, I'm I'm sort of picking over and rereading at the moment. When I when I do sit down and read, I'm look at read things I've read before. I had a period last year where I was going back through all of Lindsay Davis's *Falco* uh, mysteries, one set in ancient Rome. And rereading those because again they're delightful I mean, they give you such a wonderful period of sense of, of time and place so that's my reading list is is comprised of things i have read and things i need to read but, but at the moment i'm finding it time to uh, to actually get into anything in any kind of depth yeah private eyes about as far as i get most days that's more than enough to read <laughs> right, that is brilliant morgan and marilyn thank you so much indeed bye this is river radio and you're listening to turning pages with heather adams thank you for joining me so recently, both Julian and I were looking at our books for our off-the-shelf feature, and we, um, Julian looked at uh, The Third Man, which is a firm favourite of his, and uh, we haven't spoken about it yet, but it was one that we wanted to do, and I decided that we ought to do a Graham Greene section. Because he's such a fantastic guy. Absolutely fantastic. Good range of books. Yeah. And he famously worked in espionage in MI6 mm-hmm. and he travelled the world and somehow found time to become one of our greatest writers of the 20th century. Well, so, what more can you say? Well, exactly. 24 novels, short stories, poetry, two autobiographies under his belt. So, let's start off with a little reading of The Third Man. The Third Man by Graham Greene. Chapter One. One never knows when the blow may fall. When I saw Rollo Martins first, I made this note on him for my security police files. In normal circumstances, a cheerful fool. Drinks too much, a 
and may cause a little trouble. Whenever a woman passes, raises his eyes and makes some comment, but I get the impression that really he'd rather not be bothered. Has never really grown up, and perhaps that accounts for the way he worshipped Lyme. I wrote there that phrase, in normal circumstances, because I met him first at Harry Lyme's funeral. It was February, and the gravediggers had been forced to use electric drills to open the frozen ground in Vienna's Central Cemetery. It was as if even nature were doing its best to reject Lyme. But we got him in at last and laid the earth back on him like bricks. He was vaulted in, and Rollo Martins walked quickly away as though his long gangly legs wanted to break into a run, and the tears of a boy ran down his 35-year-old face. Rollo Martins believed in friendship, and that was why what happened later was a worse shock to him than it would have been to you or me. You, because you would have put it down to an illusion, and me, because at once a rational explanation, however wrongly, would have come to my mind. If only he had come to tell me then what a lot of trouble would have been saved. Well, the uh, the third man was first published in 1949, and it was actually published as a novella, which was a preliminary to uh, Green's uh, screenplay for the film, uh, and it's still available through Penguin Books. And as we've heard, um, the the novel set in post-war Vienna, when the city was occupied by the four powers: Britain, France, America, and Russia. Now, it's one of the reasons you love this book. It's because it's set in Vienna. Indeed, it is, which is a city I know very well because I have family living there, aunts and uh, and cousins. Um, and I know it, it quite intimately. And it does feel like sort of a spy city, doesn't it? It does, because it really is on on, on that axis, if you like, of, of, of what were the former Eastern uh, countries, Eastern communist countries. And Vienna always played that role. And even Austrian airlines were very proud of their connections to, to all of these, well, now ex-communist states. Yes. Yeah. So really, it's, and it is very atmospheric, even to this day, one of the great, you know, great cities to live in and to visit. Yeah. You really must go, you know, it really is. But at the time when, uh, when Rolo Martins lands up, of course, it's, it's, it's war-torn, it's, um, quite a lot of it's flattened. Um, and uh, he's an American pulp writer, uh, who writes uh, novels, uh, but he was, in, uh, sorry, I should say Western novels, uh, but he was pub- uh, invited by his friend um, Harry Lyme to Vienna um, to, to come and uh, take up a job. Yeah. And so he decided that he would but no sooner has he arrived uh, that he finds out that his friend Harry Lyme's been killed in a motor accident outside his apartment and as we heard from the extract um, it, the, it's at the, at the funeral that he first meets um, Major Calloway and Sergeant Payne who happens to be a great fan of um, Martin's books and both uh, Major Calloway and, and, and Sergeant Payne are members of the British Royal Military Police. The story starts to unfold with the introduction of shady friends of Lyme's. There's Baron Kurtz, a very curious and odd man. And then there's Dr Winkler, who is his medical advisor. And then there's a rather sinister Mr Popescu. And then we're also introduced to Anna, which, who is Lyme's actress girlfriend. And she's living in the city on forged papers and who uh, attracts the unwelcome attention um, of the, the Russians, um, which is a, a theme that runs through the, the story. 
Martins doesn't believe what Major Calloway tells him about Harry, uh, that Harry was mixed up in a penicillin racket, um, which was selling drugs uh, greatly diluted, um, which caused horrific consequences for the patients that were, it was administered to. And though Calloway urges Martins to leave Vienna, he doesn't. And then he takes, Martins takes up an offer from uh, Mr. Crabbin, who's uh, from the British Liaison Office, to give some lectures, which he leaps at because he can stay in the city at the, you know, actually the British government's expense. And then the story starts to gather a pace after Martin spots Lyme in a darkened doorway and chases him, but Lyme disappears and he just doesn't know where. Um, Martin's now knowing that Lyme is alive, contrives to meet him, which happens at the Prater, which is that wonderful giant Ferris wheel. Yes, um, I've been on that. But actually, I have to confess, I haven't. Oh! <laughs> That's one thing I haven't done. <laughs> but something Next on the list time. There's something else that's on the list to do, which will come a little bit later. Okay. So now, of course, everything's gathering a pace. And needless to say, Lime's end uh, is, is, is coming into sight. But we do know how um, Lime has managed to uh, evade um, the four powers police. Because, of course... He uses the Vienna sewers, ah. which is a great thing. So have you walked around the... Well, that was the thing I was going to say, cause, cause, uh, which I was going to say later, but I'll tell you now, is I haven't done it. We, we were planning on doing it because the city of Vienna does do tours I know. of yes. the sewers. But I think when we were doing it, I think it's on certain times of the um, in the week, and I think there was some reason that we couldn't make it. So I've never managed yeah, that. But I, I, I believe it's, it's well worth doing. But uh, but the film itself is is one of the great um, uh, film noirs of the genre and the and the cast was superb. Joseph Cotton playing Roller. But incidentally, interestingly, he's, he's known as Holly in the film, not Rollo. Um, right. And then Trevor Howard plays Major Calloway. Bernard Lee, um, who we know as, as, as um, M in the Bond films, he uh, played Sergeant uh, Payne. And Wilfred Hyde-White plays Mr. Crabbin. But also, credit must be given to the fabulous music, which we just heard, played um, on the Zitter. And it was written by Anton Karras. Um, and what we call the Zither, but in fact is the Zitter. Um, oh, what a shame. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but up, up until up until Caras um, actually um, wrote that piece and played it, he was an unknown performer, and he just used to play in local Heurigers, which are the little wine bars. Um, and, and then he got his break and that was his in break, the film. Absolutely, from that. And, and, and I think that piece of music sums up everything, not only the novel, but it's the city. Yeah. She says. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting that that's quite a slim novel because I've it also is. picked a slim novel for my my best first mm-hmm. choice, which is Brighton Rock. Right. Um, thin novel, but a lot goes on in it. Oh, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. It's absolutely fantastic. And what I particularly like about it is that first line mm-hmm. that really sort of draws you in. Let's listen to the, the very beginning of the story. Brighton Rock by Graham Greene. Hale knew, before he'd been in Brighton three hours, that they meant to murder him. With his inky fingers and his bitten nails, his manner cynical and nervous, anybody could tell he didn't belong. Belong to the early summer sun, the cool Whitson wind off the sea, the holiday crowd. They came in by train from Victoria every five minutes, rocked down Queen's Road, standing on the tops of the little local trams stepped off in bewildered multitudes into the fresh and glittering air. The new silver paint sparkled on the piers. The cream houses ran away into the west like a pale Victorian watercolour. A race in miniature motors, a band playing, 
flower gardens in bloom below the front, an aeroplane advertising something for the health in pale vanishing clouds across the sky. It had seemed quite easy to Hale to be lost in Brighton. 50,000 people besides himself were down for the day, and for quite a while he gave himself up to the good day, drinking gins and tonics wherever his programme allowed. For he had to stick closely to a programme. From 10 till 11, Queen's Road and Castle Square. From 11 till 12, the Aquarium and Palace Pier. 12 till 1, the front between the Old Ship and West Pier. Back for lunch between 1 and 2 in any restaurant he chose around the Castle Square. And after that, he had to make his way all down the parade to the West Pier and then to the station by the Hove Streets. These were the limits of his absurd and widely advertised sentry go. Advertised on every messenger poster, Collie Kibber in Brighton today. In his pocket he had a packet of cards to distribute in hidden places along his route. Those who found them would receive ten shillings from the messenger, but the big prize was reserved for whoever challenged Hale in the proper form of words and with a copy of the messenger in his hand. You are Mr Collie Kibber. I claim the Daily Messenger Prize. This was Hale's job to do sentry go until a challenger released him in every seaside town in turn. Yesterday South End, today Brighton, tomorrow. Exactly. Tomorrow, where will it be? Indeed. So it's that really great first sentence that pulls you in. Mm-hmm. Hale knew before he'd been in Brighton for three hours that they meant to murder him. And what um, a page-turner, a well-crafted book this is. And a lot, as you quite rightly said, goes on. So the story, for those who don't know it, gang war is raging Mm -hmm. in the dark underworld of Brighton. And Pinky is just 17 years old, and he's a bit of a... Well, I think he's he's had a bad turn in life, and he's Mm. been caught up in this sort of gang... And he's ruthless and he kills a man. And then he realises that there have been witnesses. And at that time, when it's been written, if you get um, convicted for murder, you get hanged. Yes, yeah, death penalty then. Yeah. Absolutely. So the two people that have, uh, have spotted him is um, sort of like a middle-aged, self-appointed sleuth, oh, yeah. Ida Arnold, <laughs> who is just a woman on a, miss- a mission. But the other one is Rosie, who's this sort of waitress that has also had a really pathetic start in life Mm -hmm. and and pinky decides that the best way to keep rosie under control is to marry her right and there's something about Mm -hmm. the book where obviously pinky is evil and horrible but because rosie sort of falls in love with him that you sort of want their their marriage to sort of work you want them to have a little bit of good luck Mm, um and then possibly he'll see the error of his ways um, but of course, there's that brilliant um, Richard Attenborough film mm-hmm. in um, as Richard Attenborough's Pinky in 1948, I think it was. Was it 1948? Yeah, just an absolute classic. Yeah. So there was another one that was done um, with Helen Mirren. That's right. I mean, I was going to say fairly recently, but yeah. I mean, in, the, in the last well, last ten, ten years, ten years, I would say. 10, yeah, 10, yeah. So I haven't seen that one. I, I saw, I saw, I saw parts of it. I, when I say parts of it, I think I actually stumbled across it, and it was you know, because it's much more modern and yeah. more more powerful. I think um, because with techniques of filming and so forth. You know. Yeah, but I think the novel actually slim, yeah, yeah, really good, mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant, 
Right, what else have you got? Well, my other book is um, a a little favourite of mine, which is um, Travels with My Aunt. Um, And this was published originally in 1969 by Bodley Head and is currently available um, from Vintage Classics. And um, it's actually one of Graham Greene's lighter novels and it concerns um, Henry Pulling, who's a conventional um, and slightly boring bank manager who's taken early retirement. Yeah. um, And basically his early retirement is to tend his dahlias, read the complete works of Walter Scott, which were left to him by his father, and squabbling with his next-door neighbour, which is a grumpy retired major. Well, that's one way to spend a retirement. Absolutely, yeah. But that's it. And then then he's contemplating maybe marriage to a rather sort of um, dumpy woman who's only interested in tatting. But that comes in later. (laughs) Anyway, Pulling's life takes a bit of a dramatic turn when he meets his uh, septuagenarian aunt, Augusta, for the first time in 50 years at his mother's funeral, after which he goes with Augusta to her house where he meets Augusta's lover. Now, bearing in mind that Aunt Augusta is in her 70s, um, but he meets Wordsworth, who's her, her lover, several years her junior. Well, from there, Henry's journey really begins, um, and it starts off um, with the first uh, an excursion to Brighton um, to meet some more friends of Augustus, where Henry learns um, something of his aunt's early life and past adventures. And having been foretold by a psychic that he will embark on many travels, this comes to pass with a trip with his aunt to Paris, then to Istanbul on the Orient Express. Along the way, Henry discovers more of his aunt's past, which, apart from the fact that she's a bit amoral, she's no respecter of authority or convention. Um, she's adept at outwitting the police in several countries and, to top it off, is a dab hand at smuggling and contriving complicated scams of which Henry ends up being a willing accomplice. Brilliant. Absolutely superb. And then thrown into the mix... Um, there's a chance meeting with a young lady called Thule, who's the estranged daughter of a CIA agent. Um, and she introduces Henry to smoking marijuana. Now, bearing in mind, this guy's been tending his dailies, and all of this has suddenly happened to him. <laughs> and then there's an entanglement with the Turkish police over a gold ingot, which uh, results in Henry and Augusta being deported back to England. Yeah. And it's after his return to England, Henry discovers, yeah, back to his dailies, basically, and squabbling with his neighbour, that um, tending all of his dailies is not really what, you know, holds his interest. And then he receives a letter from his aunt Augusta. Um, she's she's hoofed it and is now living in South America. So he goes to join her over there with the love of her life. Now, you'd think that would be the fitting end of the story because he's packed in quite a bit already, but it isn't. Um, not by a long shot. Um, and we're only just halfway through. For you see, Paraguay beckons and with it a life that not only the former Henry could have ever dreamt of. So you must rush out and buy a copy of Travels with My Aunt to find out what happens next. Oh, yes. And there's one piece of advice um, that Aunt Augusta swore by, which is never lock your luggage because that implied to a customs officer that you had something to hide, which invariably Aunt Augusta did. (laughs) And there's a footnote, just yep. a little footnote. Not long after the book was uh, published, so that was in 1969, in 1973, I beg your pardon, a film was made with Guess Who playing Aunt Augusta. Oh, um, Maggie just, uh, Smith. Oh, Maggie Yo, Smith. Superb. Oh, yeah. perfect, yeah. yes. And Alec McCowan played, uh, played Henry Pudding. 
But I've got to say, that bit of advice about locking your case, they actually now have luggages, of course, with keys that the um, US yes, customs right. office yes. can open. Which all came about after after the um, 9-11 uh, yeah. bombing. So, yes, you've got these um, eight, um, uh, TSA, the Travel Security Authority of America. So these locks are now established, so, which they can they can access. So Aunt Augusta was before her time. Oh, she was before yeah. her time, yes. And I think Graham Greene was, was a great traveller, wasn't he? He was, yes. Um, so I was reading sort of biography about him. He was saying his life can be boiled down to sex, books and <laughs> depression <laughs> or travel literary activity and... Uh, Bipolar disorder, actually. Right, yeah. He's a bit of a strange, strange character. I once heard that he played Russian roulette. He argued that he has played Russian roulette with a bullet in his um, in the gun. And he was having this conversation with Fidel Castro, oh, as, you, as you yeah, do. Yes, yes, of course. I think he met a lot of dictators. Anyway, Fidel Castro sort of worked it out, worked the odds out. <laughs> and um, he said it couldn't possibly be alive if that was really true. Ah, uh, right. So he was rumbled by Fidel, was I he? Think so. So, <laughs> Mind you, actually, with with Graham Greene's life, I um, you know, there's the whole list. You just see, you know, the, the, the great hotels he stayed in. But of course, apart from being a successful novelist, I mean, he did have quite a lot of money because you probably know he was of the Green King family, the brewers in uh, Bury St Edmunds. Oh, I didn't yes. know that. Yes. So he, yes, so he, he had his, you know, had in the uh, his, uh, in, in the old uh, ale cast. They were, yeah. And did you know they had a spat with Shirley Temple? No, really. <laughs> yes. So he sued. Oh no, he he was sued by Twentieth Century Fox Gosh. because he suggested that Shirley Temple was a bit saucy, um, <laughs> was coquettishness, as I think was the phrase he used. <laughs> it probably was because she was too young and didn't drink the beers. Yeah, probably. Mm. We won't. We won't go into that. Anyway, he lo- He did lose. He oh, did right. lose. So Shelley Temple's um, is is fine. Um, so um, I was going to pick the end of an affair as my oh, yes. final book, and really, that's just it's a bit sad. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about um, a love affair that started and then ended quite quickly, set in the London Blitz, and the right. woman decides that she can't, um, can't go any, anymore. She walks off. And then two years later, they, uh, they have a chance meeting, and it rekindles their love and jealousy. Mm-hmm. But um, the guy, a guy called uh, Maurice Bendrix, hires a private detective to follow Sarah. And slowly, his love for her turns into an obsession. Oh, yeah. So it's quite sad. It's mm-hmm. beautifully crafted, um, but it's sort of full of pain and rage that you sort of want to to turn away from the page, but you can't. You just have to keep carrying on right, because it's drawn, yeah. drawn on to the next. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You, and you can't read it and not be moved. Mm. I think. Um, but, but don't you think that but that's the genius of green i mean just from the, the few we've talked about today i mean uh, the third man um brighton rock um uh, travels with my aunt and, and then you you look at our man at a havana uh, all but all of these as 
there's such different stories. I mean, yeah. This is a love story that you've just spoken about, heart-wrenching love story. Then he's got a, a murderer in, in Brighton. Yes. And you've got worn to a... I mean, just... And then you've got the, the, a 70-year-old aunt. Yes, yes, yes exactly. You know, uh, knocking over the police. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's just what a, what a fertile mind he yeah. had as a storyteller. He wasn't just a one-track, oh, I just write um, detective novels or I just write romance novels. I mean, it's just a range. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. So, talking about a range of books, I spotted something in the uh, newspaper which really uh, I found quite delightful. And it was from John Steinbeck's um, right. um, estate. Yes. So, obviously, John Steinbeck wrote Grapes of Wrath mm-hmm. and Of Mice and Men. And would you believe it? They found a, a full novel which has never been published before in the archives. And it's called Murder at Full Moon. Mm. And it's a werewolf, a mystery werewolf story. Wow. So, obviously, people are very excited about the fact that they found another John Steinbeck novel. But the estate think that because he didn't publish it in his lifetime, he obviously decided that it wasn't appropriate. So they're saying that it won't be published. So what do you think? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a bit of a shame, first and foremost, not only from the estate, because presumably um, they're going to cash in if it is published, um, because it won't be. A, I don't know how the copyright laws work, but it would be in copyright, so they'd be rather foolish not to let it go ahead. But why not? Um, you know, it might have been that he was setting it aside because he was doing something else at the time, if he completed it. Um, and it was probably, yes, well, it would be something completely different from whatever yeah. other novel he'd written. So I, I, I think it should be published. I think so. I believe it. But it reminds me of my little joke. Oh, like go on, joke. very quickly. I used to be a werewolf, but all right now. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's, let's stop that. <laughs> you are listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to talk to us about, do let us know if you run a book club or a local author. We'd love to hear from you. And you can contact me on Heather at River Radio with any of your book news. And in fact, uh, Shelley Luscombe has been in touch and she's said that um, there's Nancy Ravel, uh, who's a Sunday Times best author, uh, is one of her favourite books. So, thank you, Julian, my co-host, to author Jay McKenzie for chatting to us about their latest book. And um, I'd also like to thank you for listening. Next week, we'll be chatting with Ellie Pilcher, who's the author of What Planet Can I Blame This On? Fabulous novel about the fortunes of a 29-year-old. Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, 
Reading. Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. We'll go live at one. Um, Barney, check on over that door for a few minutes, please. Yeah. I'd love some if that's possible. Thank you. Thank you so much,
Can you just go onto the app and just tell me what's yeah. playing out? Yeah. Thank you.